This evening's scripture is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, staff pastor here at Grace Downtown. We're so glad that you're with us to worship tonight. We are this semester going through a series entitled Living Stones, where we are taking a look at the family of God in the Old Testament, especially in the first couple books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus, because we believe that looking at our spiritual heritage and looking at what the Bible has to say will show us a lot about who we are and show us what it means to be a living stone today. And ultimately, what we're trying to see is the God that is faithful to his people. So today we'll be taking a look at Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, if you want to turn there. By way of introduction, uh, this fall we went through a series through the book of First Peter. And in First Peter, we talked about how we can have a living hope. We can have a living hope because of the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And because of what he did, we can now have a living hope for today. This language of living stones also comes from 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read that we are a living stone being built up to a spiritual house, and we are a holy priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices to our Heavenly Father. Continuing on in verse 9, Peter writes, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. So what does a life lived this way look like? For us, there's some metaphorical work and there's some uh, biblical work that we have to do to figure out what it means that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation. But when we look at the Old Testament, and the believers of old, our spiritual heritage, we see that they were literally these things. So as we look at their lives, we can see something that's important for our lives, ultimately, the faithfulness of our God. This semester, we're studying the beginning of the Old Testament for two main reasons. First, to study our spiritual family. By doing so, we learn something about ourselves and we learn something about God and how God interacts with his people. The second reason is to not only know what the Old Testament says, but how and why it makes a difference in our lives. You don't have to read too far through a Bible reading plan that takes you through all of Scripture before you read something that makes you say, 
why is this here? Why is this beneficial? How does this benefit my life? The first nine chapters of Leviticus have a lot of details about how to skin a goat. It's hard to see why this is relevant for you and me today here living in our modern society in Iowa City. So we want to see what is God trying to tell us through the Old Testament as we go through this series called Living Stones. Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word and through your spirit and through your people. And God, we confess we need to hear from you tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to worship you with our words, with our music, through our acts of service, through learning from your word. God, we pray that we would be a people that offers ourselves, our bodies, our lives, our careers, our families, our time as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. God, we pray that you would speak to us now and and show us what you would have for us. I pray that you would speak to each one in a very specific way here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with our family? What is wrong with us? These are questions that if we're honest, as we look at the world, as we look at our family over the holidays, or our lack of family over the holidays, as we look at our own lives, we come away with these questions of what has gone wrong. We turn today to understand these questions and and look to God's word to help us answer them. Last week, Pastor Brooks talked about how God's word shows us what life is all about. The author of all life has authored a book through human instruments to give us all we need for everyday life and living a godly life. And in this book, we read the foundations and about the builder of the spiritual house that we're told we're being built into. Last week, Pastor Brooks said that in order to figure out the purpose of life, we can't just look at the living stones. We have to look at the builder. And far too often when we're trying to figure out why we do the things we do or why society does the things that they do, we look at people to try to get our information. Or we study people to try to see if we can figure out how people are acting now and how they will act in the future. Well, as Brooks walked us through, we first have to go to the foundations and the builder to understand what's going on with the stones in the metaphor. We need to go back to the builder to see what's going on in our lives to figure out what has gone wrong. We looked last week about how we are made for relationship. We are made for a relationship with God, our creator. We are made for relationship with one another. Interpersonal relationships were made to have perfect relationship with God that flows out into a perfect relationship with others. That's what we're made for. That's what we want. That's what we long for. In some ways, that's even what we expect relationships to be like. And we are made even for a perfect relationship with creation. We're made to have dominion. Adam and Eve were given dominion. And if that dominion is combined with loving stewardship, it leads to stewardship, cultivation, care of creation, care of what God has made, uh, using the resources that God has given us to cultivate them, to produce more that provides for us and others. 
This is what we're made for. However, as we heard that last week, as we look at these things, as we think about our relationship with God, as we think about our relationship with one another, as we look at our relationship with what God has created, we see that something's gone wrong. Something is broken. First, when we talk about God, we live in a time and a place where the existence of God is no longer a presupposition. We live in a society where for the first time in forever in our country, the majority of people do not believe in a God. God is not a presupposition to them. If we do know this creator God that we're reading about in the Bible, we can't help but feel in our very being the brokenness that exists in our relationship with the one who has created us. God's voice, God's plan, God's promises can be seen by us with suspicion or we find it hard to believe or we doubt that he really loves us. We may believe for God so loved the world, but we struggle to believe that we're included in that lot. When it comes to others, our relationship with others is broken from the very start. Everyone in this room has a mother and a father biologically. It took a mother and a father to bring you here today. I don't want to get any deeper into that as there's children's presence, but you guys know what I mean. It took a father and a mother. But not all of us have a mom and dad. Someone that cares for us, someone that shows us the love of God, someone that gives us the basic needs that we have as a small child. We're supposed to know God because of the love, grace, and protection of our parents. Brooks stated last week that we are supposed to be billions of mirrors reflecting the glory of God. That's what we're made to do. We are billions of mirrors. All humans are supposed to be mirrors that just reflect the glory of God the way the moon reflects the brightness of the sun. The moon has no light of its own. It only reflects the sun's light. That's what our lives are supposed to be like. Yet, our mirror is broken. And we see the glory of God reflected through other broken mirrors. In the words of Isaiah, I have unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Our mirrors are broken. We see God's glory reflected through broken mirrors. And so even the ones where we're supposed to be in most intimate relationship, the ones who are supposed to show us what God is like, do so in a broken way. So our relationship with others is broken. And then our relationship with creation is broken as well. Our relationship with what God has created is broken. Instead of this dominion plus love equals stewardship, cultivation, and care, Brooks pointed out for us last week that dominion minus love leads to exploitation. So we use what God has created. We use God's creation. We use one another to bring us pleasure and get what we want to the point where we are no longer stewards and dominion is now a bad thing. 
We use our dominion, we use our privilege, we use our authority, we use our resources to spend it on our own passions, and we don't consider that God has created it for his glory and for our good. So just the simple fact that my entire lifetime, your entire lifetime, there have been people that have so much food that they throw half of it away and there's people starving every day. We have not been good stewards even of God's creation. So we're left with the question, what has gone wrong? Why these broken mirrors? Why are we broken mirrors? Why are others broken mirrors that do not reflect the glory of God? We need to look to the origins. Open with me to Genesis chapter 3. Many of their verses will be up on the screen, though all of them won't be. So please open with me to Genesis chapter 3 from the very beginning. Last week we looked at chapters 1 and 2 in God's design that he has for his relationship with us and our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation. So today we look for the answer, what went wrong? Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Old Testament professor Walter Brueggemann points out that this is the first instance in scripture of people talking about God and not to God. Here, the serpent comes and starts talking to Adam and Eve about God. And for the first time, Adam and Eve hear a voice that is not God's voice or their voice with one another. To this point, they've heard from God. They're in perfect relationship with him. They're hearing from him. He's telling them what to do. He's telling them to have this dominion plus love and this creation care. He's telling them how to have intimate relationship with him and with one another. But for the first time, they hear something outside of that perfect relationship and brokenness enters the picture. And it's talk about God instead of to God or hearing from God. The serpent here brings restrictions and laws where God has tried to give freedom to his people. If we look back at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, we see what God said. It says, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat it, you shall surely die. Here, God highlights and emphasized his provision and his good that he has given to Adam and Eve. But here, the serpent talks about the restriction and the law and the things that are being kept from Adam and Eve. And not only that, but Eve here adds to what God says and says things that God didn't even say. As soon as the serpent wants her to focus on the restriction, she adds restrictions on to what God actually did not say. God did not say, if you touch it, you will die. He says, if you eat of it, 
you will surely die. Instead of subduing the creation and worshiping the creator, Adam and Eve listened to the creation and they were subdued by it. This is where everything went wrong. God's law is good and for our good. It is to protect our mirror. It's to protect us and make sure that we are in perfect relationship with him and with one another so we can reflect the perfect glory of God with a perfect mirror to other perfect mirrors and he receives all the glory. That's his purpose. That's what he wants for us. But Adam and Eve, with the help of the serpent, saw the one thing that God protected them from for their own good. Let's see what happens next. Genesis 3 verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This offer that the serpent made to them, this focus on restriction and law and what God may be keeping from them, appealed to the flesh. Eve saw, she delighted and desired, and she took. This is the DNA of sin. We see with our eyes, we find it delightful or desirable, and then we take and we eat. This word delight or desire, depending on your translation, the original Hebrew word is closer to the word that we know as lust. In fact, it's used in other places in scripture to uh, signify lust, wanting something and reaching out and taking it when it's restricted from you. Delight and desire and taking. Whether it's a child or an adult with a cookie, or it's an adult with food, pornographic images, smartphones, we see, we delight, we take. We see something, we desire or delight in it or lust after it, and we take and we eat and we partake. And in the moment, it may be enjoyable. It may give us a dopamine hit, a thrill, a pleasure. But just like for us, for Adam and Eve, there were consequences to seeing, delighting and desiring and taking. Let's see what the consequences were for them in verses 7 and 8. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There's some consequences. In the moment, that apple, that fruit, probably tasted good. It was enjoyable. But there were consequences. First, now there is shame. They noticed that they were naked and they wanted to make provision for that nakedness. They felt naked before God and before one another. They were immediately aware of their brokenness. They were immediately aware of their nakedness. They were immediately aware of their separation. There is now a block between them and God and them and each other. That freedom that God has 
had given, eat of any tree except this one tree, they are now very aware that they ate from the one tree and they feel shame. There is a break in their relationship with God. There is a break in their relationship with one another. There is a break in their relationship with creation. Instead of using creation to worship God, they have used creation to indulge self. They have been subdued by creation. With this shame also comes self-provision. They had everything that they needed, but then they realized they were naked and they sewed fig leaves for themselves to try to hide their nakedness before God and before one another. They needed to provide for self. They didn't immediately go to God. Instead, they said, we have to hide this shame ourselves. And third, God's presence was no longer good news. God spoke to them. And what does it say in verse 8? They heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. To this point, God's voice had meant something good. It was something that was for their good. It was something of worship. It was something that moved them to worship and obedience. And now they hear God's voice and they hide. Like a kid who knows he's been caught with his hand in the cookie jar. Or who knows he's been running around upstairs instead of laying in his bed where he's supposed to be. And he hears dad's voice coming up the stairs. God's presence is no longer good news. This is the consequence of their sin. This is the consequence of our sin, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. Verses 9 and 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Our parents' voice should be the most comforting voice to us. But because of brokenness, that is not the case for everyone. Here, God's voice, though it's supposed to give life, it causes shame and hiding. God's voice is supposed to say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's supposed to say, peace I give, your sins are forgiven. But now God's voice causes them to feel shame. There's a break in that relationship. The next thing that happens is the blame game. Verse 12 and 13. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Here's how it goes. God tries to hold Adam accountable and asks him, where are you? What have you done? His answer is, you gave me the woman and then she gave me the fruit. So ultimately, it's your fault. The blame game starts. Adam was to guard the garden. Guard what God had created. Have dominion plus love equals stewardship and cultivation and care. He is supposed to be on guard for his family and for creation. Yet here he blames. It says, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. The woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. There is no taking of responsibility for their own actions. We also see here 
that one of the consequences is suffering. Suffering. We see that suffering comes into the world as well. Look with me at Genesis 3. It won't be up here on the screen. But if we continue on in the story in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So consequence for the serpent. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. We'll talk about that in just a moment. In verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Verse 17, and to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here we see suffering has also entered the world. Eve is told, you will now have pain in childbirth. Adam is told, your work will continue, but now it's going to produce thorns and thistles instead of the fruit you want it to produce. You're going to continue to work to have to subdue the earth, to have this dominion, but now it's going to be toilsome labor for you. These are the consequences of sin. It brings about suffering into the world. We're also told in this passage, God is to have the authority, but now husband and wife are going to desire authority over one another. And that also is going to be broken. However, we see here that one of the graces of God is that he offers the man and woman a chance to continue their line and procreate, to have children. We see even Eve given the name Eve, which means the mother of life. Adam is taken from the origin, the man. They are going to continue on the human race, which is a grace of God. So their race continues, they're able to procreate, and then we can move on, right, to chapter 4 of Genesis Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 4 as God blesses them with children and they have two sons named Cain and Abel. Uh-oh. While God gives them the grace of procreating, their line continues. We see the first brothers, Cain and Abel. One desires to work, to subdue, to have dominion over things with care and love and worship of God. The other... Cain desires to be above God, and he gives in to sin. Cain is devoured by sin and then literally devours his brother in blood and murders him. The first brothers, jealousy over their kinds of worship, jealousy over the offering that they brought, and one devours the other. Here we see a picture of, of sin, we are told here that sin is actually a violent force. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. 
First Peter, we just read in First Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here in the first brothers, we're seeing a picture of sin as being something that we don't just accidentally do after Adam and Eve, but it is something that is actively, violently looking for an opportunity to devour us. More on this next week and the week after that as we continue on in the story. Cain's response to God is, how do I know what, where my brother is? Am I my brother's keeper? And it serves as an ironic rhetorical question in scripture because that's exactly what he was supposed to be. Just as Adam failed to guard the garden, Cain failed to guard his brother and instead took his life when he was supposed to be protecting his life. God's rhetorical answer to him is, yes, yes, you are your brother's keeper, yet you have devoured him because you were devoured by sin. The first two brothers, one named Abel from the Hebrew word Havel, which means meaningless breath and vapor. And Cain, who murders his brother and then is consumed with shame. As we read Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, there are three different ways that we can read the story. And two are unhelpful. The first one is we can see this as a religious myth. And try to come away with some kind of spiritual principles from it. That's not helpful. Secondly, this one sounds right, but it steers us wrongly. We can see this as a book of history that we are supposed to take away every single thing about science and original sin and male-female relationships and marriage and creation care and fighting the devil and who the devil is and where the serpent came from. And we're supposed to figure all that out from these chapters. Sounds right. It's not right. And in fact, it gets us off track. To be sound Bible readers, we need to understand the questions that the Bible is trying to answer so that we can answer the right questions with the Bible. Sometimes we ask of the Bible for it to answer questions that it's not trying to answer in the first place. So the third way of reading stories like this in the Bible is that we can see a description of who God is, who we are, and the nature of the problem in the world. Here we see who God is. We see the origins of what has gone wrong and we can see what needs to change in our life in light of that. So our takeaway from this is what Romans 5 talks about when it says condemnation and sin entered the world through Adam. You may have heard of the concept of imputed righteousness, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. But before Paul in Romans 5 talks about imputed righteousness, he says, first, we have to understand we have imputed sin. Imputed just means put into. We have sin put into us. That's why when we baptize people here at Grace, we say, are you by nature and choice a sinner? And the correct answer is yes. By nature and by choice, we are sinful. We have sin imputed to us because of Adam and Eve, because of original sin, because of their desire to be autonomous from their, from their God, for their desire to see, take, eat. Because of that, we have sin imputed to us. And then every day we also choose to sin. 
that's the story of sin. But there's good news. This is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the Bible. And we don't even have to fast forward to the book of Romans to see God's mercy and grace amidst mankind's deepest brokenness. So before we finish out what Paul is trying to say in Romans about imputed sin and imputed righteousness, we need to look at the offerings of grace right here in these chapters and in this passage. So first, four fruits of grace, four offerings of grace. First is the offering of provision. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Adam and Eve had shame. They had brokenness. They immediately were aware of their brokenness in their relationship with God and with one another. So they made provision for themselves and made clothes out of fig leaves. And God saw it and he said, that won't do. That won't do. He's saying to them, you don't understand the depths of your sin and you don't understand the depths of my grace. You don't have to provide for your own shame. Even though you have gone your own way, I'm going to provide for your shame. I am going to sacrifice the animal. I am going to give you the animal skin. I am going to make provision for your sin. What an amazing, gracious, heavenly father we have. He made them for perfect relationship and he gave them all the rest of the garden to eat from. And they ate from the one tree he told them not to. And what does he do? He offers them provision to cover their shame and their brokenness. What an amazing act of grace. Second, he offers them his protection. He offers them his protection. Continuing on in verses 22 through 24, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of The garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Here, God says this brokenness, this sin, this wickedness cannot last forever. We have to make provision so mankind can't keep destroying themselves. We're going to talk a little bit more about this next week as we talk about people living to be 900 years old and how that was not a great idea. We're going to talk more about that next week. If we look ahead to Genesis 4, 14 through 15, God's provision, what he offers, his protection to Cain. Genesis 4, 14, behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. This is what Cain says in his shame. He says, I'm so ashamed. I'm going to wander the earth. People are going to hear what I did and they're going to take my life. Let's see what God says in verse 15. Then the Lord God said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. 
Cain says, I deserve to be put to death in the same way I have taken life. And God says, be it not so. I will protect you till the day you naturally die. What a gracious God. God offers his promise. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, God offers... First, a judgment and a punishment on the serpent. And he says, the offspring of this woman will defeat you once and for all. That word offspring that's used twice, it's singular. It means your one offspring, one that will come from you. Not many, but one. This is prophesying from the very beginning God's plan to rescue his people and send a redeemer, an offspring of the woman, Jesus, who would come and crush the serpent once and for all. So before the punishment is given to Adam and Eve and God's provision for their shame, he first curses and punishes the enemy and calls out his future, which is to be defeated once and for all by the finished work of Christ. And then... God gives Adam and Eve a commissioning. This year's Bible reading, this has stuck out to me more than it has any other time that God keeps commissioning his people to do what he has called them to do. Man, by the time I got to Abraham, I would have said, forget you all. I'm going to come up with plan B. But he just keeps reconfirming his commitment to them and the commissioning he's sending them on. He tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it with love. He reconfirms that with Noah. He reconfirms that with Abraham at the Tower of Babel, with Joseph, with Moses, with Joshua. He just keeps telling them, nope, still haven't given up on you. I still have a plan for you. I still have work for you to do. Go. He does the same with the disciples in the flesh. Jesus just keeps recommissioning them, restoring them, saying, Feed my sheep, go to all the world, share the gospel to the ends of the earth till everybody knows. And now he's trying to do the same with us. We come to him in 2023 broken, ashamed, suffering. He restores us and he says, I've still got work for you to do. This is God's grace. So God offers his provision, his grace, his mercy to his people. So what do we do in light of this? We see, we desire, and we experience the Lord. When Eve sinned, she saw, she delighted, and she took. When we sin, we see, we delight, we lust after, and we take. Instead, we need to flip the script and see how good and gracious and merciful our Heavenly Father has been. We need to see him for who he truly is. And when we do, we will desire him above all else, delight in him above all else. And then we need to experience more and more of the reality of his love and his power in our life day by day. That's what we need. That's how we overcome sin. And Yes, 
we need to make every provision we can to defeat sin, remove any temptation, get rid of smartphones, avoid things that cause us to sin, avoid certain kinds of media, avoid certain people in our life. We need to take extreme provisions to defeat our sin, but nothing will defeat our sin like seeing that Jesus is better. We cannot have open hands to receive all he has for us until we drop the things of this world that aren't making us happy. We need to know this good news. We need to believe this good news day in and day out. And we need to share this good news with a world that's full of bad news and false saviors and false gods and lots of pretty things that don't ultimately make us happy. What happens when we do this? When we see, desire, and experience this kind of relationship with our creator, there's three implications once we start living this kind of life. We'll close with these three things. The first one is when we see and experience the Lord for who he truly is, autonomy from him and his law sounds terrible. Sounds terrible. We start to hear about the 99 trees we can eat from, and we don't even think about the one he says, that tree's bad for you. Autonomy from God, deciding what's right and wrong for ourselves, deciding what is pleasurable and good for us, starts to sound terrible because we know where it leads. And it's nowhere good. The Israelites never fully realized the promise of the commissioning that God had given them. They kept stumbling over their own idols, their own problems, their own sin, their own suffering. And we on this side of heaven never fully realize what it means to walk in the joy of our creator. But then if we look ahead, we can know what the future holds. In Revelation 22, the last chapter of scripture, we read about a people that serves and reigns over creation in the way Adam and Eve were commissioned to do so from the beginning. One day, because of what Christ has done, we will be forever in his presence. We will experience all the freedom and joy that comes from perfectly worshiping him. Our broken mirror will be restored and we will just reflect and bask in the glory and the joy of our creator for all times. When we keep that in mind, the things of this world grow strangely dim and we can joyfully just let them go. Next, when we see, desire, and experience the Lord, the serpent's voice is a slither. It sounds like a deceiving snake that's trying to destroy us because that's what it is. So when the enemy tells us that sin is worth it, when the enemy tells us that we can live autonomous from God's rule and law, when the enemy comes and tells us we're worthless, we're too broken, the damage has already been done, we should just wallow in that shame. Did God really say? His voice sounds like a lying, deceitful snake. The more we hear of God's voice, the more we will recognize the things that are not God's voice, the things that are holding us back, the things that are lying to us, the things that are saying things about us and God and others that are not true. 
when we see, desire, and experience the Lord, Jesus becomes our only hope. Because we see the depths of our sin and something takes place. We see the holiness of God and what he requires. And then we see the depths of our sin. And then we see our need for Christ. And then we see the depths of our sin. And every time we look at him, we see how short we have fallen. But then we turn back to our Savior and see how great he is. The more we see of our sin, the more we see our brokenness, the more we see how deep and wide our sin nature is, the more we see that Jesus really is our only hope. We're not going to figure it out. We're not going to get over it. We're not going to get past it. We're not going to find the right technique, the right book, the right guide, the right mentor, the right church, the right podcast. We're never going to overcome our sin nature without Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. I feel like my sin is ever before me. Do you guys know what whack-a-mole is? It's a game that you used to play at Chuck E. Cheese or the arcade. And these little weird moles pop up and you have a hammer, this fake play hammer. And you have to hit them when they pop up. And as soon as you hit one down, another one comes up. And the closer you get to the end, there's like this bonus round where they just like all pop up at the same time. And you have to hit as many as you can. And then you get five tickets and you get a, a sucker or whatever. That's whack-a-mole. That's me with sin and pride. It's just as soon as I defeat one, another one pops up. And then I defeat that and two pop up over here. And then this one pops back up again because I was focused on these other two. My sin is always before me. And I just keep uncovering new ways to be proud. I can't get out of my own way. I know the thing I ought to do, but I find myself doing the very thing I hate. When we see our sin face to face, the imputed sin that we receive from Adam, our daily choice to go our own way, we see that Jesus is our only hope. Turn with me to Romans 5. Right after... Paul talks in Romans 5 about this imputed sin that we're given from Adam. He tells us that that's not the only thing that's been imputed to us if we are in Christ. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many? Translation before we go on to the next verse. You think imputed sin was strong? Wait until you see imputed righteousness from Jesus. You think the serpent is strong? Wait until you see what Jesus has for you. 
verse 16, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. When do we reign? In life. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and the life for all men. That act of righteousness is already done. Jesus did it. That's why he said it's finished. He did that one act of righteousness, and now in him, that sin nature that you have, that's been imputed to you, is now overcome by the righteousness of Christ that is also imputed to you. You ever think, man, sin's not fair. If I was Adam and Eve, I wouldn't have eaten that thing. That is not fair. You want to know what's really not fair? Imputed righteousness. Christ always doing the will of the Father. Christ being perfect God in the flesh coming and giving his life for us so that in him we could be the righteousness of God. And here Paul is saying that is so much more powerful than sin imputed to us and sin that we choose to do every day. What an amazing savior. What an amazing God. Cain said, I deserve to be killed and cursed in the same way that I killed and cursed my brother. God says, be it not so. The good news of the gospel is that sinners like you and me do not get what we deserve. But we receive grace and mercy. Jesus takes what we deserve and he gives more grace. Before we close tonight, I want us to watch a testimony. Of what a living stone looks like through much brokenness and sin and a fallen world like we all live in. It's important for us to see what this looks like day in and day out through life's hardest and worst circumstances. So our friend and downtown attender, Sambo Vance, has made a testimony video for us to talk about God's work in his life. I think this is a fitting conclusion to what we're talking about here tonight. I grew up with a brother and a sister. I'm the youngest of three. My parents were married until I was about five. When they divorced, we were in between custody. For most of my childhood, I lived with my dad, but I'd visit my mom on weekends and stuff. And she still lived in the same town. I grew up in North Liberty. But the weird dynamic is my sister, when she was the age of two, she was diagnosed with a neurological disease called Crabbe's, and that took her vision and her, her speech and her motor skills. So she was in a wheelchair and also couldn't see or communicate verbally. We'd interact just like normal siblings would. I would just have to adapt on, okay, she can't speak, so I'll touch her hand and sing songs that she likes together, go on walks together. We'd watch Wizard of Oz together all the time kind of being sensitive to her needs and just adapting towards that. The interesting dynamic was just kind of having people in and out of our house 
24 hours a day that were nurses that were caretakers. Her disease that she had was terminal. Doctors said that she was supposed to pass when she was five and she lived to be 26. She ended up like getting pneumonia like eight or nine times in one year. That last year was, was really hard on our family. So the way that I handled it was there was either two ways to go. I could self-destruct or I could be healed. I could ask for healing. I never got angry at God because Jody was sick. You know, if I believe that God exists, he has a space in heaven for my sister. And knowing Jesus answered a lot of questions that I had about where we go after life. There wasn't a foundation of Jesus in our home at all. I knew that God existed and I knew Jesus was special, but I had no understanding what it means to be a Christian or anything like that. When I was 16, I worked at Shields at Coral Ridge Mall, and a coworker of mine invited me to this festival called Cornerstone. And a lot of those bands that play are punk rock bands that I was into at the time. And so my attraction was to go see bands at a discounted ticket price, and I just had to tag along with this youth group. The only catch was we just had to go as a group to just listen to a speaker. I went to the festival, had a great time, and then on the very last day we had to listen to a speaker. So I was just sitting in this tent, and what I recall was that Jesus has a place for all of us, and that was something that I never heard before. So I didn't know that Jesus' love like existed, and it was for me. And I just remember being like 16 years old and just like coming out of that tent and it was like, Sam, I have a place for you. And there was definitely a, like a spiritual transformation in my heart when that happened. God truly met me where I was at at that time and just embraced me in, in the sweetest way. The Holy Spirit was working and I, and I loved it that I found truth in that and truth that I wasn't seeking, but truth that I knew that I needed. As a teenager, I went to that youth group until I graduated high school. That youth group was very crucial in sort of my, like, laying the foundation on how to read the Bible and kind of just love on those that are suffering and kind of being there not only as, as a friend, but as, like, a brother in Christ. And then outside of high school, I uh, went to Salt Company in college and kind of got involved in playing worship with them. So then after Jody passed, I was in a position where I just needed a job. And getting into in-home care was a great way for me to heal after that adjustment of, of losing Jody. And without me knowing it, I had a skill set that I didn't know that I had taking care of individuals with disabilities. Being surrounded by that in my home life, I'm not afraid to take care of somebody that needs help. What I enjoy about it is building relationships with these individuals and looking at them as human beings not just people that just need care. Being in their environment, in their home, you get to you get to learn about who they are as as people. And you can't help but just think of, of how God takes care of us and whether I'm feeding somebody or changing them or giving them a shower, you know? What would I do if I was in that situation? I would want somebody to love me and take care of me the way that they would want to be taken care of. That gives me a lot of joy and a lot of purpose. God is teaching me patience and he is teaching me to persevere and to not give up. Since COVID, life has just been insane. It's It's been pretty wild trying to adjust to just how the world works. And so I think what he's teaching me right now is be slow to anger and you, and you need to love on your friends and you need to be there to mean what you say and to show up and be there. Because when people need you and you're not there, you're, not, you're no good to them. If you're there, you're a part of it. And and I, and I do truly believe that you will find fulfillment 
in, in serving. I have a lot more to live for than myself, being a husband now and wanting to be a father. There's a bigger picture than my little life right now. And he needs me in his body to, to serve and to grow.